Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum. Chris McDaniel is on assignment. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And our special guest for today... Jane Duker. We're going to depart a little from normal political speaking uh, trajectory. We usually have um, political elected officials in studio to talk to, but today we're starting a new series on Politically Speaking where we're going to talk to some of the state's most prominent and... Um, Behind the scenes player. We're going to have Jeff Rowe on the show for next week. Republican. A, a prominent Republican consultant. And then we have some others, but we don't want to tele- telegraph. We're so gonna stay ke- tuned. We're going to keep that a secret. Yes. But with all of our guests, we always ask them how they got into politics, their background. Tell us your story. Okay, so um, I had very little contact with politics as sort of a young child. And you grew up here in St. Louis? I grew up in St. Louis and born and raised here in St. Louis. Where did you go to high school? I went to Visitation Academy (laughs) and uh, graduated in 1984. That sounds really long ago. I mean, but anyway, I think my 30th reunion's coming up, so I've got that hanging over me. But anyway, um, and so I went to uh, college at, I started at Mizzou and finished up at UMKC, so I've been all over Missouri. And then went to law school at St. Louis U. And after law school, I went to the attorney general's office. And I was actually hired by Bill Webster, who um, eventually ran into trouble. Now, that's an interesting thing. I didn't know that you worked for Bill Webster. Bill Webster, for our listeners, was Republican. Uh, He was considered the heir apparent to be governor in 92. He ran for governor, but ended up, it was this massive field, and he ended up losing uh, the person ended up being Mel Carnahan, who was governor, Correct. and Bill Webster ended up going to jail. Correct. So, so did you work dining. with um, Chris Coster and Kenny Holsoff in his office, or um, were you in separate sectors? No, actually, I'm probably one of the few people that crossed both of them. So uh, General Coster was actually in the office when I started. And, um, you know, not long after I got there, the FBI, I happened to be on the same floor as the finance office. And the FBI came and looked at documents. I, I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. I mean, I was a card-carrying Democrat and was still nonetheless hired. And, and I actually started with Ted Ardini, who's mm-hmm. chief legal counsel for Governor Nixon. So right. we were in the same AG class. And uh, so anyway, so that was sort of interesting. We weren't sure how that was all going to play out. So we sat there and waited for the election. And. And then um, now Governor Nixon was elected. And so I primarily worked for um, Jay Nixon as an assistant attorney general. And frankly, that's what got me excited and into government and into politics. It, so, it is not uncommon, especially since the AG's office is an office of, I guess, what, 200, 250 attorneys mm-hmm. for Republicans to be hired by Democrats, Absolutely. Democrats to be hired by Republicans. It's Absolutely. more of your pedigree and what you can do for the office as opposed mm-hmm. to legal political mm-hmm. stuff. Correct. So that's kind of one of the different aspects of state government um, right right there and there. So. Yes, especially in the AG's office. And so what was great, though, is when, when Governor Nixon came in and took over, it, you know, it didn't matter if you had been there for 20 years or, you know, five months. If, you know, if you wanted to do the work and you wanted to do big cases and do big things, you could. And so... 
it was exciting. And so one of the first cases I worked on was um, the Southwestern Bell case, which was a huge, you know, $400 million rate reduction. And I wasn't even licensed yet. And so Jay took over and I had sort of taken on the case and was sort of running with it. And um, so uh, it was sort of exciting. So that was the first year. That was one of his biggest cases. And I got to work on that. And that was really exciting. And and I got to work with um, Governor Holden, who was then treasurer. So I represented the treasurer's office. So that's how I got to know Governor Holden, which is interesting. And then you ended up then I went to private practice for a while. Eventually needed to make a living wage because um, I, I waited tables at night when I was first an assistant attorney general. So Yeah, I know. They, their pay is Yeah, huge. the pay is not great. So I was really excited when uh, then General Nixon came in and said, hey, we got an appropriation. We got some more money, and now you don't have to wait tables at night. And that was a, a big milestone <laughs> for me. So I worked at Domenico's for the, those of you who are in Jeff City. So that was sort of interesting. And um, so then after I did that for two and a half years. I actually, the last case I worked on was the um, Kansas City desegregation case in front of the United States Supreme Court. And um, so John Munich in our office argued it, but there were a number of us that worked on the brief. Uh So that was exciting. And then I went to private practice, needed to make a living wage and came home, got married and um, was in private practice for a while. And then um, in 2002, I'd always been friends with Governor Holden, Treasurer Holden at the time. And uh, he approached me about coming to his administration, and I happened to be seven months pregnant, and he hired me as chief legal counsel, which is sort of an interesting timing. (laughs) I was going to say. Oh, yeah, I had a four-year-old, and I was seven months pregnant, and I said, okay, husband, let's go to Jeff City. So off we went and uh, did that, and my daughter was a newborn. She was born in October, and I was chief of staff by early that spring. Yeah, so. and you were the second woman to be chief of staff to Correct. governor. Yeah, the Correct. first the first was Julie Gibson. Shout Correct. out to Julie Gibson. Shout out to um, Julie Gibson, and um, but I was the first female uh, general counsel to a governor. Which, it, you know, the day I got appointed, I got a call from someone, and they said, "Hey, you know, are you the first female in history?" I said. I don't know. I will have to check. And so, check. so you were chief of staff in 2003, 2004. That Correct. was a pretty combative time. It, it was not. Absolutely. It was not really the best of times for for then Governor Holden. What was Correct. it like to be chief of staff during a time when he was basically being battered by all sides, not only Republicans but eventually Claire McCaskill, the auditor who eventually ran against him and beat him in a primary. It was an amazing looking back at the time, you know, luckily I didn't know enough. So sometimes it's better to not know enough. But the the amount of transition going on, you had the House taken over finally and the Republicans finally took over because of, of term limits. So you had, I don't remember, ninety something new members. So I mean the legislature changed instantly. So that was a dynamic that no one had ever faced before. And so, you know, that was unbelievably challenging in and of itself and I think frankly it it probably destabilized the political environment enough that you know things like primaries and and crazy stuff happening and budget crisis all coming together um, really made for an interesting perfect storm at the time yeah because Holden had won a very tight election for governor in 20,000 votes yeah in 2000 2000, and I'll never forget 2003 January of 2003 when the Republicans were taking over the House, they had already taken over the Senate, and there was this huge long line outside the Capitol to get through security and everything to get in for um, new Speaker Catherine yes. Hannaway's address. Correct. I'll never forget that. It was. It was really amazing because I was obviously um, in transition from chief legal counsel to chief of staff at the time. Little did I know, you were actually, Joe, you were the first person that called me 
when that broke. And I was driving home from Kansas City in an ice storm with uh, Roy Temple, who's now the chairman of the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, I felt like I was the person who left the room and was voted, you know. (laughs) And Joe called me and said, I heard a rumor that you're going to be chief of staff. And I was like, how does she know that? And because I I wasn't even sure that it was fully happening. She knows everything. No, I don't. She she clearly did at that point. And so it's... And I've forgotten most of it. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, I... uh, And and you were sort of the catalyst that uh, helped me let it sink in. And I remember getting home that night and sitting up in bed wide awake saying, this is really happening. So when a reporter asks you, I guess it's real at that point. So it was real that night. And, um, but yeah, it was an extremely interesting time. And, but I will tell you, I, you know, I have still to this day have a very good relationship with Mike Gibbons. I have a very good relationship with Catherine Hannaway. And as challenging as it was, and this is what people don't remember or didn't see at the time, was how much we got done. Um, even though there were a lot of arguments, and there were, and they were all public. And so it was, um, you know, it was interesting. And so, you know, while we fought about a lot, I mean, you know, what part of no don't you understand? We vetoed the budget. I mean, there were a lot of very public battles, but there was a lot that got done. Um, things like, you know, tax credit reform, foster care, mental health parity. Um, um, you know, we had various job bills. We had, so, uh, you know, the unemployment insurance fix. Things that aren't getting done now, which is sort of interesting because I'm not sure that they were fully aware of what this transition was going to look like either. And so as much fighting as there was, there was a lot that got done. Um, And so behind the scenes or whatever, I mean, just or not behind the scenes, but I think people were focused because it was an election cycle on what was what people were fighting about. And so that was sort of interesting to do sort of the political part. But then there was just the day to day governing, which which we did. And so people don't see that. But I, I don't see that sort of, I don't see that going on right now. Do you it's th- a little different. If Bob Olin would have won that primary, do you think he would have beaten Matt Blunt in 2004? Frankly, I think he probably would have had a better chance. I think um, if there hadn't been a primary at all, I think he might have. Um, I think a lot of, this was a strategic political decision that was made at the time. And, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, But putting the gay marriage on the ballot um, during our primary was probably made it extremely challenging for us because a lot of Republicans came into that primary, but they didn't stay with um, now Senator McCaskill during the general. So it was very fascinating to me to see both and how it came down. And she successfully got Republicans to come into her primary and the gay marriage just handed it, you know, to her in that way to yeah. get those people to come in. I mean, the uh, gay marriage thing, just for our listeners, that was on the, the gay marriage ban on the 2004 August ballot. The governor put it on the uh, the August ballot. Many thought he was doing it as a, actually as a help to the Democratic Party in November. John Kerry was the nominee and to try to keep that off the um, radar in the November 2004. But yeah, I think it did play a major role. How big? Who knows? Well, there were a lot of votes. I mean, in just looking Between at the general, and and, and what from a, she was able to keep. From a practical standpoint, it passed with 71% of the Absolutely. vote. And it's a constitutional amendment. So the only way to get rid of it now is another vote as Absolutely. opposed to it being a statute. So it does have actual implications. But there weren't, there wasn't big Republican issues or primaries going on at the time. No. So Republicans would not have come out in August. And that was a big right. change. So that was, 
That Correct. was really yeah. fascinating. Are you saying the Peter Kinder Pat Seacrest primary was not uh, a no? One? It didn't seem to be top of the top of the ticket. <laughs> no, at no, the you time. might be surprised. I remember that, but I actually do remember that yeah, in college. because so. I, I remember that. Yeah, obviously. Governor the, Bob was always governor. a team player, and I, you know, I mean, me personally, I think, you know, he was doing what was better for the whole, and that was Bob's mo, and. You know, sometimes politically that doesn't always, um, you know, get you where you want to be. I mean, that's my personal commentary, you know, 12 years later. So after that, he's defeated. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's out by the, well, he was still governor. Correct. But in effect, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, by the end of 2004, he's gone. January Mm -hmm. 2005, Matt Blunt comes in. Mm -hmm. What do you do? This is a lesson to our listeners and what happens to Big Shot. Yeah, you wonder, you know, you wonder. Major players who lose their office. Right. You know, I drag my family halfway across the state, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, if my guy loses, am I done, you know, am I done in government, am I done in politics? And, well, the first thing I did was I did help with the transition, so, um, which was very fascinating, actually, and and I really actually enjoyed that, Um, you know, making sure that they had everything they needed, and, you know, there's the code. I mean, the code is government's more important than you, and the politics are the politics, but I was on the governmental side, and it was about making sure the train ran on time and government did what it was supposed to be doing, and so I did the transition, and then I came back to private practice. I was at Stinson at the time and came back to Stinson and um, decided, you know, I wanted to transform my practice. I had sort of grown up as a traditional litigator, a traditional lawyer, tried cases, and but always loved the government, but, you know, was a litigator. But after coming back and after having worked in Holden's office, I realized that I, that I wanted to solve problems. I didn't want to necessarily fight about them. And that, and after, you know, administering a, you know, then a $25 million budget and 20 state agency and 65,000 state employees, you know, you feel, you know, you're in the position of a CEO and you realize that, you know, litigation and there are a lot of different ways to solve a problem. And I learned a lot of skills in private practice and, and then in two tours of, you know, duty in Jeff City about, um, you know, how to get things done as opposed to how to blow things up and how to, you know, fight about them. And so I decided to transition my practice into more of a, what, what we call governmental solutions practice, where you have clients, individuals, and anybody that has an issue with government, um, you know, you consult with them about how to solve the problem. And the beauty of, of all the experience that I've had has helped me because it gives me a lot of tools to solve a problem. I don't go in now as a traditional lawyer and say, oh, sue them, you know, because that's often what lawyers do. But, you know, you, it's where law, policy, lobbying, coalition building, and PR and media all sort of intersect. And I did that, and that was my job, and, I've, and I loved it. And I, I didn't realize as a lawyer that that, that would be a skill set that I would have because delegation is not always a lawyer strong suit or type A by nature. <laughs> so, so tell me kind of what you do now. I know you've been obviously involved in a lot of uh, litigation mm-hmm. involving St. Louis County, the, yep. the trash case. Um, the, the mediation, the me- foreclosure. Foreclosure mm-hmm. mediation. The Peabody case in the city. The uh, initiative petition in the city regarding uh, the Moore petition. And so that, and I've done a lot of initiative petition sort of litigation work, and that's part of what I do. And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the legal tools you have. And so when somebody comes to me with a problem, either a, you know, a company or an individual or a group of people, a group of citizens, when I worked with the, with the people, the citizens in Ellisville, 
and, you know, and fighting the Walmart out there. That was a lot of different skills. That had a lawsuit component, but there was also, you know, appearing at meetings. There was also dealing with the press. There was also, you know, different ways to skin the cat. And so what I can go to people and say is, look, you have a problem that needs to be solved. And, you know, I have a lot of tools in my tool belt that can help you solve this problem. And so I'm sort of fortunate because I have a lawyer. A lot of consultants aren't. Or a lot of people are just straight lobbyists. And I can lobby, and I've done that. I worked on the Doe Run override. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, I can do that. Um, and But I can also put the whole strategy together. And even if I'm not the entire person executing, I know all the components that need to be there to get whatever change you need, whether it be a statute change, whether it be a regulation change, whether it be you develop a coalition of people, of interested people that can help you get it done. Um, I understand enough about policy to help people wade through and figure out which policies and where you go. And so it's more of a procedural skill as opposed to the substantive skill. I mean, I know a lot about government, but not to the extent my clients would know. But what I can do is look at them and say, okay, these are the tools you need and this is how you deploy them and when you deploy them. And that, I think, is where, from my perspective, that what I do is unique because I can, I can deploy any of those tools, but knowing when to use which one to get the result you need. And so it's, it's more of a procedural type of consulting skill. Some clients have PR departments, and so you just, you know, you, you steer them. Or sometimes, you know, they're already in a coalition, and so they already have all the interest groups that are aligned with them sort of lined up, but they need, need to know, you know, how to deploy that and what to do in order to effectuate change. And so, you know, you work within what the client has and try to help them supplement what they need to get from point A to point B. So I, I like the solution part of it as opposed to just the fighting part of it. Sometimes it's there's 10 ways to skin the cat, and why not figure out the best way to do it? And so I think being a lawyer in private practice and going back and forth twice to government has not only made me a better lawyer, it, it's made me a better human being, which is probably the most important thing, but it's giving me a lot of different perspectives. Um, a lot of people in government have never been in, in the private world. And a lot of people who've been in the private world haven't been in government. And somebody needs to translate. And it's, you know, and so doing both helps me translate. Now, now you're, okay, and I, I don't, don't, I don't want this to sound wrong, no. but in some ways you're an odd duck. In I that, am. In, in that even though you're active in democratic politics to some mm -hmm. degree, mm -hmm. many of your clients are not like the traditional democratic clients. Correct. And right. sometimes you've been on the side opposing uh, Absolutely. For, for example, the foreclosure mediation situation Correct. were major, major priorities of not only St. Louis County Executive Charlie Dooley, but also Mayor Francis, Francis Slay. And, and, and you represented the other side. I Correct. represented the Missouri Bankers Association, right. which is not traditionally a Democratic organization. She, and then just, just to, I, though I talked about this incessantly last year, there was foreclosure mediation ordinances passed in the county and the city. Correct. You sued to try to get them overturned on various on different grounds. On behalf of Correct. your clients. Correct. To, em emphasize. And Correct. then in the Peabody case, mm -hmm. you were, um, there's a group that collected uh, stuff to get on the ballot that mm -hmm. would in effect block any tax breaks to Peabody or any of the people. What they deemed an unsustainable Any businesses producer. who worked with Peabody without getting into the details. But you represented Peabody. In, well, in, actually, I represented some citizens right. in the city of St. Louis who wanted to challenge that. In initiative. the successful effort to keep that initiative off the ballot. And I think yes. in both of those instances, um, the legislature essentially passed some sort of bill 
that essentially short-circuited both of those things. It's definitely the Absolutely. foreclosure mediation yep. situation. And, yep. But I think also there's a bill pending now that would effectively make the, the initiative moot. Is that, am I misinterpreting there, that? There's a bill that refers to it, but it's already, you know, both ordinances have been basically declared invalid. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and, and aren't being enforced at the current moment, we actually just argued in front of the Missouri Supreme Court on the county case. So uh, uh, two the, weeks ago. On the foreclosure case? On the foreclosure oh, case. Okay. And so, um, News? which is interesting. What, what's yes. there left to deal with in that well, situation? Well, the whole issue of mootness and whether the county is going to try to continue to enforce it based on another reason. And it's a long, pro- it's that's a procedural nightmare as to why because, we're Because, I mean, I've, I've read that law 60 times and it's pretty clear that yep. that pretty much bans foreclosure mediation. I mean, even the proponents of it say so. So They uh, did, but the county has sort of may have changed its mind. Anyways. Yeah, in another way. And now you also represented uh, some... One of the people in Ellisville who were against Yes, Walmart. the Walmart. I represented Tom DeBold, and that, that actually went up to the Missouri Supreme Court as well. Um, and trying to, um, uh, we fought over the permit, the, the conditional use permit that was given to Walmart in Sandstone to build a Walmart near Clarkson and uh, Manchester Roads. And in, in effect, County. that Walmart proposal is now dead, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. And that, and that so, was the catalyst behind the wackiest municipal situation the of the last 20 yes. years. Yes. Oh, yes. That's hyperbole. Absolutely. I mean, so yeah, I mean, That's I was right in the middle of, of that. Yeah. yeah, I bet. Yeah, we all spent a lot of time <laughs> together out at, uh, in Ellisville at night. So I, I was I happy to, to have did, night I don't know anymore. if Adam Paul realizes how, um, well, Extraordinary. Uh, uh, well, I was going to say how dull this county council is compared to the Ellisville one, but I, after last week's meeting, I'm not sure that You're not stands positive. anymore. Exactly. And then you represented the, some of the trash haulers, correct? Absolutely. Who were opposing the county's monopoly trash program? Yeah. Okay. I mean, to be to neutralize that the mm-hmm. county's requirement that they they, they had to bid oh, they for don't dispute segments. that it's monopoly they just think they can do that and that's yeah i mean the issue in that case now right. basically is we're just arguing over how much money how so, much money the county's going to pay correct it was uh one point something million now we're up at six million and then they're appealing again and so the number could go up again so, so i the, the bottom line is that you, i have varying you have varying topics clients. and the, and the good thing is too and i think the, one of the reasons that works and I think it, it goes toward, you know, when you talk to political consultants, and, and I am a little strange because I do, I have that whole law piece that does make it a little bit different. Um, but, you know, people who know me and have worked with me, Republicans, Democrats, and I get along with both, believe it or not. And, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say. Missouri is a small town city. St. Louis is a small town city in a lot of ways. And so, you know, um, I think... One of the things that helps me be successful, both legislative arena or in the legal arena, is, you know, you just really need to be an honest broker. Um, and so I think people know that if, you know, I say A, I mean A. And and I think that's that's everything. Um, and now with term limits and other things, you know, lobbyists and people like me who have the history, probably more history than a lot of our legislators have, um, you know, and, and you talk to people. I mean, if, if if you if you don't tell them honestly and truthfully, and and where you are and why, um, you know, you're not going to be working very long. Now, are you working for Steve Stinger? Or are you just a consultant or just a supporter? I well, mean, without getting into the whole county executive, the merits race, of it. No, no. What I'm just explain yeah, because no, you are involved. In yeah, that. I am heavily involved. I'm a huge supporter. I'm not paid. Never have been paid. Okay. Um, but I'm a huge supporter. I consult with the campaign. Um, you know, whatever they need from me, I I offer. And so, um, you know, that's more of a 
that's not as much part of my job as it is that that's something that's important to me. Well, why so. is that important to you? Why would you feel like it's worth exerting your energy to get involved in that race? Well, I mean, interestingly enough, I think it sort of started with the trash case. Um, I mean, I supported Charlie Dooley when Buzz Westfall passed away. Um, you know, the Democratic Party, it was very challenging time. Yes, I mean, it was an I awful was, time. And, you know, and Buzz was a, a I huge, covered su- that. Yeah, a huge supporter of Bob Holden. And some people wonder what if he had been alive, whether things might be might have been a little different um, because, you know, Buzz was so popular and was yeah, so Buzz supportive died of, in, in October of 2003. Right before. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was very challenging. And so, you know, but having been in the middle of a primary at the time, the idea that that anybody would put a primary up um, against Charlie Dooley was something that we were not supportive of. And I think there was technically a primary, but none of the opponents were particularly strong, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was basically clear for him. But continue. And so so I was supportive of Charlie. I mean, I I really was um, lock, stock, and barrel. And after I got back from Jeff City and Charlie won, I met with him and, you know, offered to help. And, you know, he was new. And, you know, I said, whatever you need. And so, but as time went on, um, the trash case sort of started it. I just started to see that that things just, from a governmental standpoint, and I'm a at heart, I'm a governmental geek, and I I believe in government. I believe if it's done well, government can be a very positive force. And I just felt that government was being twisted, and it wasn't a partisan issue, obviously, because I'm a Democrat and I'm a card carrying Democrat, and I'm open about it, and everybody knows where I stand, and I'm a loyal Democrat. But I just felt like government was getting twisted, and it really bothered me. And, um, you know, it took me a little while to come out publicly, but, you know, I've never been known to be reticent. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I've probably been an outspoken critic for a while now. And so this isn't new that I would be supporting Steve. And, frankly, Bill Corrigan, you know, didn't get it done. And I think, frankly, because St. Louis is a Democratic county. The only way that there's going to be change in that office is to do it through a primary. Now, um, you you had been approached to actually be chair of the Missouri Democratic Party, correct? Well, there were discussions about a lot of different, you know, okay. people and whatnot, and and so, um, you know, I'm my belief on that would be, I mean, Roy is great at it, Roy Temple. Yes, so far and listeners. I worked with Roy when I was in Governor Holden's office, and you know. I'm a big believer in put people where their skill sets lie and you will get the most out of them. Mm-hmm. And um, and frankly, that's not necessarily my skill set. Um, and so um, I'm extremely supportive of Roy. I'm extremely supportive of Crystal. I am so proud of what Senator McCaskill and what uh, Attorney General Coster are doing for the party and starting to rebuild it in a way that we haven't seen since Bob Holden was around. Is and it kind of odd having somebody who had been a Republican? Mm-hmm. I wrote about this on the site, so for, yeah. for listeners who are interested. But now he's like the largest donor to the Missouri Democratic yep. Party. And Saturday night at Jefferson Jackson Days, it was to some degree, as someone described to me, they said, well, this is sort of the Chris Coster show. From a standpoint, I don't mean this badly. It's, but, I think it's a but, great thing. Yeah. But he's Attorney Emerging General. As the leader. He's the heir apparent for Governor. running for the gubernatorial nomination. You know, there's going to be a Republican uh, challenger, so it doesn't mean there's no automatic election. But the point being that he is sort of now, in effect, the... Um, the head of the party, the, the head of the Missouri the Democratic state. Party, and, and is it's that great. an odd situation since you know? Well, him? it's interesting because I've known Chris since we were teenagers. I was actually 
this is so funny. I was his bus girl when um, we were teenagers. He was a waiter, and I was a bus girl at Pasta House in Frontenac. <laughs> Again, relating to the fact that St. Louis Hot is a news. small, yeah, a small town city. Oh, he loves to tell people. Make no mistake, he gets really excited to tell you, oh, Jane Duker was my bus girl. And we were at an event with, you know, 800 people, and he told everyone that. And I was like, okay, that cat's out of the bag. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I've known Chris for, you know, a big portion of my life. And, um, and I was fortunately... Yeah, one of the people that that sort of knew that he was going to come over to the Democratic side. And I was, you know, I was actually thrilled about it because, you know, if you can attract people to come to your party, that's winning. You know, in my view that that, you know, the Democrats, we were having a rough time at the time. And, um, you know, and the idea that we would be able to to pick off a high you know, profile Republican means we're winning. But I will tell you that would that was not met with uh, uniform no, joy wasn't. among people. That was, no, I mean, that was, was a very ugly primary between yeah. him very and Margaret Donnelly and, and Jeff, Jeff Harris, Harris and the Molly Williams. We can't yes, forget her. Kansas City. Correct. The mystery woman. The mystery woman. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I was called a traitor to my gender, literally, um, at the time. Oh, and I know people who supported Coster, be it Jeff Smith, Victor Callahan, Tim Green, mm-hmm. Rodney Hubbard, all those people were we were Yeah, we were not treated. We were not treated well for a while. Which is why I think the fact that he's become the undisputed gubernatorial nominee is kind of interesting because the people that supported him in 2008 were kind of seen as outliers while all these other people were supporting the other two candidates and it's completely changed around. It just goes to show how things can change so quickly. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that, that, that General Castro has done a really good job of stepping up for Democrats and that's when we need it. And the fact that you have, you know, two very strong, you know, politicians in Missouri, Claire McCaskill and Chris Coster, coming together saying, look, this is the good of the whole and, and we've got to do things differently. And um, I think it's really impressive. I think it is very helpful for that sort of, you know, other than the primary going on in St. Louis County, you know, the Democrats are going to be united and, and that's a great thing. And so he's really earned it. And and it wasn't easy, yeah. and and it could have easily not happened. I do have one question about mm-hmm. that donation, though. And I mean, obviously, from a political standpoint, I don't really see much downside for either him or the party of getting that influx of money. But absolutely, at the same time, the party has been very adamant about campaign finance reform and campaign mm-hmm. finance limits and banning committee to committee transfers. That's been a big pet project of of Jason Kander. But the, the do you think it's State, inconsistent? Do you think that's? Do you think the fact that you know, the leader of the party is giving a committee to committee donation of that large amount. Is that kind of undercutting that message of campaign finance reform a little bit? I don't think it does, because this is the deal. If if General Coster sat at the Democratic Party and made phone calls, he would raise money for the Democratic Party. I mean, Bob Holden used to do that when campaign finance right. limits were in place. And he would go over and he, you know, he was the last one who really dedicated a lot of time, energy and resources to the party. But with campaign finance limits, that was a little bit more necessary. Yes. But um, so it would be no different than if he sat down and raised the money because the, the, you know, the head of the party is usually the one mm-hmm. that's that does that. And so from my perspective, um, you know, the, the committee transfer, uh, you know, to me is is I mean, that's a logistical thing. But the bottom line is he would be raising that money for the party anyway. I, I mean, I don't think it's inconsistent of him because he's been on record 
twice now through his votes of not being for campaign finance limits, um, both in 2006 and 2008. I think he's been eminently consistent on right. this issue. And so to me, though, I mean, you know, that he's just doing directly what he could otherwise do indirectly. Right. I mean, unless you're really going to get at that issue, you're going to have to go after committee to committee transfers and nobody's showing any desire to get that done. So but I mean, from a political standpoint, it garners him a lot of goodwill. $100,000 will help people like Jill Shoup. And this and, is his second $100,000. Yeah, it'll help people like Jill Shoup and Jeff Rorta who are trying to win Senate seats um, and, you know, House members who are yep. winning tough races. So politically, I see no downside for either oh, him absolutely. or the Democrats. And I that. think and I think there are a lot of, you know, a good number of Democrats out there that think that maybe that sort of influx of cash earlier on might have been more helpful for candidates. And so, you know, it's always, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, but, you know, Democrats don't want to be looking at themselves and saying, wow, if we had just, you know, five grand more in this, you know, one house race right. could have made that difference. Nobody wants to look back and say we didn't do what we could have done to get it done. Because if you look at the Republican side, I mean, they are just as far as a legislative money train, it's just almost endless. Oh, it's prolific. Because right. not only do you have a lot of donors giving to Republican legislative candidates because, you know, the majority party typically gets more money because Absolutely. that's just the nature that's of it. That's how it works. There's just a lot of senators who have large war chests who are not running for anything that could just give $100,000 to majority no funding or whoever wins the 24th district race or Paul Weiland or anybody else. So. Mm -hmm. It really does require people like Coster and potentially McCaskill and others to step up and mm -hmm. give that money. Otherwise, they're not going to the Democrats are going to be at a huge disadvantage. Although I was thinking about this. I mean, you know, Coster is also raising money to run for governor. Yes. I mean, and and, doing quite well. And giving 200,000 within the past year to the state Democratic Party is 200,000 that's not on his bottom line. Correct. I, although I think he can probably get $200,000 pretty quickly. Yeah, he he's he's shown to be very um skilled at raising the money. But, I mean, but I will tell but you. But my point is, yeah. uh, right, he could have easily said no. gubernatorial candidates yeah. and I'm not I'm not I want to emphasize. I'm not knocking Governor Nixon, but Nixon took a different, a different style. approach. Right, different and, style. And most of the money like for the 2012 election went into his coffers and then he decided whether or not any went out to the state party or whatever as opposed to going and, to the and state. And that's garnered a lot of criticism, but I could kind of see it from his perspective too because number one, you know, he was running for re-election himself. Right. And, and it a lot mattered of, that he was governor and, to Democrats. And he was running against a millionaire. And he was running right. against somebody who could drop like right. $10 million Absolutely. at any time. And the fact that, you know, the coattails, you know, there's something to be said for having long coattails. And so, you know, doing really well in the governor's race, you know, presumably gives coattails that, that floats all the way down. So it's a different philosophy. I, I think I, you know, I agree with you. There may be different times and different strategies for different times. And I think that Chris, you know, and, and, and Claire, I think rightfully say, okay, we want to do it a little differently this time. Um, and um, I think it'll be very interesting to see how it works out. And I think, you know, the party, I'm, I'm very heartened by the fact that the party is, is not just a money laundering machine anymore. I mean, we are, you know, actively recruiting candidates out there actually developing the messages and, and really, 
keep talking to Democrats and uniting Democrats in a way that we hadn't done in a while. And, you know, it's easier to raise money now. I mean, you know, Bob Holden did it, you know, a thousand bucks at a time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of donors that people had to get back then to get the same amount of money. I mean, Bob raised, what, $13 million for the primary against yes. Senator McClellan. That's a lot of money, $1,000 at a yeah, time. Jim, yeah. And so, you know, it's pretty interesting how um, that, so that whole strategy has changed now. And so the bigger checks, you know, make it possible quicker. And so you got, you know, politicos have reacted to that, you know, reality. What do you see as your role, though, going forward? I mean, we're going to have the election this fall. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in general, what do you see as the climate? And then, of course, will you be active for particular clients in 2016 who are on the ballot? Or do you expect to spend time like you have been working for particular candidates candidates, or particular non-candidates? Like I said, you know, like Peabody or whoever. Well, I mean, I you know, I don't I don't much see at least in the short term you know my practice changing i mean so so i will continue to do what i do now which is you know i just always call it i'm just sort of a fixer so you bring it to me (laughs) and i'm gonna find you eight different ways to fix this problem and i really enjoy that and you gotta love what you do to do this stuff because it's crazy and so um i don't see that changing anytime soon i like to solve problems i do foresee me getting more involved in sort of candidate elections i mean it matters obviously i will be hugely supportive of Chris Coster. I'll be supportive of our ticket and whoever that ends up being, Jason and others. And so I will be very supportive of our ticket. And, uh, you know, and obviously I'll be involved in St. Louis County until that election is over. Well, who's so. going to be AG? Would you run for AG? No. No, no, no. no Do you ever plan on running for office yourself? I would be, I would be shocked if I ever came to that decision. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I, I really like what I do. I like, you know, I like being sort of the strategist behind the scenes. Um, I like, uh, you know, because being the candidate is really hard. And the one thing that I learned when I was chief of staff is, you know, I mean, you're basically running government and somebody needs to do that. And I'm very committed to government. And so, you know, um, I've I've always liked that portion of it. Being a candidate is, a, is again, a very specific skill set. And um, some people are better at that than others. And so... I think uh, I'm better as a as a back sort of operative. I like being an operative. Well, that should just about do it for this week's show. To close us out, you can follow all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And you can follow the prolific tweeter, Jane Duker, <laughs> at... Jane Duker. J-A-N-E-D-U-E-K-E-R. Yeah, and she's definitely prolific. I do, I do go on rages. Very pithy. Prolific yes. is an understatement. Thank we'll, you. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.